Hi, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources, so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and then found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and I say that for my Canadian friends who are not on today. But it's cold up in Canada, and it is gorgeous in South Florida, and I am so excited. I have a guest today that I'm really looking forward to talking to, and we're coming to you. Oh, I'm down in South Florida. I'm not quite sure where she is, except she's on the other side of America, and it's early morning over there, and I'm really glad she's here. Samantha Moonwalker Tucker, are you here with me? I am. I am. I am in, I am in paradise. I am down in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Oh, wow. You are in paradise. And thank yes. you so much for being with us today. You go by Moon, is that correct? I do, I do. Okay. Yeah, I know that when you met me, I was going by Sammy. And yeah. then, uh, you know, as we all evolve, that was a name that my dad gave me when I was born because I was born the day that man walked on the moon. So Moonwalker. Well, we're going to talk about that because I'm looking at here and the videos and things that I've listened to, it's all, always been Sammy. So if I call you Sammy, I know who you are, you know who you are, but I'm going to try to call you Moon. Um, and we're going to go back. So the way I start my show, which is lots of fun, I want people to know who you are. So we're going to go back in time to when you were a kid and where you grew up and a little bit about your family. And you've got some fun things happening. So can you tell me where you grew up and a little bit about your family? Yeah, so um, I grew up on the Nebraska-South Dakota border, uh, the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. My family um, is a mix of French fur trappers and Native Indian, and so uh, kind of the you've heard you've heard the half breed. Well, we're kind of the half breed living right in the middle of of white man territory and Indian territory, and so I had a very interesting upbringing. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to date myself. I'm 52, so anybody my age uh, will know Little House on the Prairie. I was the Laurel Ingalls of Little House on the Prairie. I long brown hair, riding horses every day. I rode my horse to a one-room school on the prairie. And, and so I had a very, um, I'd say, simple upbringing, also very um, normal. There was a lot of alcohol abuse and drug abuse and sexual abuse, things like that, and emotional abuse. Um, my parents, as I alluded to when we first got started, um, you know, I was born in the 60s, uh, and uh, I was born the day that man walked on the moon. So my dad was very high at the time. Mom was very not high at the time. And dad thought it would be a great idea to name me Moonwalker. So Moon, Moon, Moon is my, um, the name that I have grown into. And as my aunt put it several years ago, she said, you know, you were born the day that man walked on the moon and your feet have never touched the ground since. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and it really resonates with me because I think, you know, right now people are changing so fast that the norm isn't normal anymore and we all have an opportunity to choose who we want to be. So um, I left, I left um, home the day I graduated and went to Arizona. Now I had mentioned that there was some abuse and violence growing up and by the time I graduated high school I was suicidal. So I went off to Arizona and quickly became a meth addict and tried to commit suicide and got messed up with drugs and ended up getting, you know, pregnant and having an abortion and then 
marrying my dealer. I was, Debbie, I was such a mess. God, I was a mess. Now, I want to go into that, but let's jump back a little bit. When you were young, uh, and I'm, I'm looking at this young girl riding her horse to school, and I don't know if you've met Hugh Vale. Hugh was Awakening and Awakening Giants. Uh, he, he was a presenter at something, and Hugh works with the Mustangs. It's Mustang Medicine in Southern Utah, and it was an extraordinary. I, I've interviewed him, and I watched some of his videos, and he uses uh, Mustangs for therapy, for therapy horses. And I'm thinking of you being around horses so much. When you were, you, a lot of people can be scared of horses and of riding. Did you have a really good relationship with your horse? It was, I had one for a month. <laughs> it cleared me of desire <laughs> to have a horse. But what was your relationship like with the, with the animals around you? Oh, that was the thing that kept me alive. My grandmother was, and is, she's still alive, um, my hero. And my grandmother was one of 12 children. She, you know, her, her dad and, and mom were homesteaders. And, and so she was born kind of in the middle of the family. So she got to choose, do you want to be outside with the guys working on the ranch or inside working in the house? And she was like, oh, no, I'm out on the ranch. So my grandmother is a master horse rider and could out-cowboy any cowboy. So I was the first grandchild, and, you know, she called me Minnie. I was her, her Minnie-her, <laughs> and so she raised me, my, her and my grandfather, very much like a boy, typically, and I, I was out on horses and working with the cattle, and horses were like, they were my best friends. And so I've, I've been on a horse since before I could even remember um, Early, early days, she got me a little racing cart and hooked it up behind my Shetland. And I, so I rode all around the country. Before I could even ride myself, I was like three years old, I think. And so I've been on a horse my whole life. And there is something about a horse in that they can tune into your, like they are so aware of your emotions and your energy that when you sync up with a horse, they literally can feel what you're thinking and respond. So I learned to train horses by that emotional connection. So the horses that I would train didn't need a bridle or a saddle. I could just get on and slight movements would move them left, back, right, stop, spin. The, the connection that a horse has with a human, I, I think, is on par with that that a dog does. They just are such a reflection of you and it's the thing that I miss the most I've had horses a, a few times since I've been an adult but horses truly did save my life growing up well when I when I listen to Hugh and, and listening to you talk about it you can actually feel it and my husband and I've started watching there we watched we binge watched the show Yellowstone and at the time I interviewed Hugh we were at the beginning where they were training the horses on the ranch up in Yellowstone and they were not doing it kindly and so he was explaining to me exactly that that the horses can feel your fear they can feel every emotion and and what they do is they lay the horses down as they're as they're helping out with uh, in therapy they're helping the person that is scared to lay down with the horse it's an amazing experience and I can imagine that that was just a, such a calming thing, a calming influence. And you don't do that anymore, I take it. No, I haven't horses. trained a horse. No, no, I haven't had a horse since 2009. Okay. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned the way that they train. That you know, My grandmother and I have been close her whole life until I started training horses. And there, there is a way that you know, ranchers typically will literally break a horse, break mm -hmm. the spirit of a horse. And as my grandmother was showing me ways of, of interacting with a horse that didn't resonate, I was like, I don't want to tie their feet up. I don't want to beat them with the milk jugs and cans and scare them. And we kind of parted ways and didn't mm -hmm. really work on horse training together because there's a natural way, there's a, a, a way of moving your energy with a horse that will earn their trust. And then once you have that trust, then it's just a partnership. It's kind of like a dance. And so I was always able to train horses without any violence. 
it was the one space in my life where there wasn't any violence. Yeah. I can hear that in your voice. It's very interesting how I can't see you out there literally breaking the horse. So, but thank you. I just wanted, I, I, that caught me when I first heard you say that you rode a horse to school when you were little. I'm like, ah, oh, we've got to talk about horses. Um, yeah. So moving on, you left, you left up uh, the farm or the ranch and you went down to Arizona and got into a bunch of trouble. What got you into the Air Force? I'm talking oh, as a former God. Air Force veteran. <laughs> okay. I was Air Force. I'm like, how'd that happen? <laughs> so I, it, it was, it was another um, just serendipity God, God moment. Um, I, I got pregnant the second time, got married to, um, you know, the, just a wonderful man. Now um, we we're both strung out on drugs. So there's, there's no judgment. We did the best we could and it just didn't work. So with a newborn baby, I ended up going back home um, to Nebraska and South Dakota and just literally fell apart. I just felt like such a failure. I, you know, I didn't know how to love myself. Now I'm a single mom and I'm on welfare and I'm back home and it's just, it's a crazy hot mess. The time in our family that that was, was really, really chaotic. And my grandfather, God love him, was bipolar and had run away from home at the age of eight because of violence at home and was raised by ranch hands. So for him, family was everything, but more like a godfatherish type of way. We always called him Raging Bull because his bipolar was so bad. And he, he kind of hit his lows, and one time he ended up in the mental ward of a hospital in Scotts Bluff, which was a town near where I was grew up. And, well, when I moved back home, I hit rock bottom and ended up in the same hospital and literally ended up in the same room that my grandfather had been admitted to. And I'm looking out the window in my little gown and realizing I'm standing in the very footprints that my grandfather did a year before in that same room when he ripped off the, you know, the, the window and jumped out and was caught running down the street with his little gown on, you know, <laughs> trying to escape the hospital. I'm like, uh, I got to do something different here. I'm repeating some family patterns and I know exactly where this goes. And so when I got, I checked myself out and I drove down to the Air Force recruitment station. And I was like, this is my only hope. This, this is it. I don't know how to get myself out of this mess. This is my only hope. So I walk in and really nice guy starts asking me some questions and, and he's like, yeah, let, you know, let's fill out some paperwork. So he's, uh, he's like, what's your address? I said, well, I just came from, and I named the name of the hospital and, and he goes, what? And I said, yeah, I just you know, check myself out of there. And, and he said, stand up and walk out. And my heart just must have, I don't know what the look on my face was, but it was, it must have been pretty panicky. And his, he just took a deep breath and his shoulders slumped and he said, and, and turn around and walk back in and tell me a completely different story. And I was like, oh, like acting. Okay, I can do that. So I walked out and I walked back in and, and none of the drugs, none of the psych ward, none of that stuff had happened. And so I joined the Air Force and it was Wonderful. I went to basic training, and the day that they give you the assignment, you know, for your job and your location and stuff, they assigned me to pharmacy. And I'm and I'm thinking to myself, oh no 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 no! I can't tell them I've been an addict. You can't put me in a pharmacy with a bunch of pills. No, this is not going to work. So I go in. I'm like, you don't understand. No, I don't want to be a pharmacist. They're like, you don't understand. People would love to have that job. I said, not me. Find something else. And they're like, well, you got to go talk to this person and that person and whatever. And and so I end up in the colonel's office, and I'm explaining to him, like, I, without explaining, right? I got to make this. Why don't you want to be a pharmacist? And and um, so I'm I'm spinning whatever tale I'm spinning, and this guy that looks like Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top walks by. Now, they stand out on an Air Force, on Langley, right? Or not Langley, but, um, geez, where did we go to Texas? What? Oh, you're down. Oh, what? yeah. Brain cramp. Yeah, so, yeah, San, San Antonio. And he just keeps slowly walking by, and pretty soon the colonel's phone rings, and, and he picks it up, and he hangs up, and he looks at me, and he says, all right, just go out the door and, and go down the hallway. 
I do. And I end up in Billy Gibbons' office. And I walk in, and he's like, hey, you've got, uh, you've got a nice voice. Have you ever considered radio, TV? I said, like, yeah, I, that was my first real job at the radio station. So I auditioned to go to the Transformation School, the same one that um, Robin Williams' character went to, uh, Adrian Cronauer. Okay. So I, yep, so I got selected in broadcasting and went and was trained to be a TV and radio broadcaster by the same guy that trained Adrian Bro- Cronauer. It was, it was quite fun. So that's how I ended up in the Air Force. It was well, that's perfect. <laughs> uh, my brother was in public affairs, uh, and, uh, and as I'm listening to your voice, I'm like, that was a great job for her. Like, they me laugh when they were going to put you in the pharmacy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I like, that would have been oh, walk was- in the door, walk out. <laughs> Yep. And it was, you know, when I look back, it was another case of, of serendipity, of just miracles, because, you know, the colonel's sitting there, he goes, you know, people don't just get to change their job because they want to. Nope. And the thing is, is that I was in his office like the next day asking to change my assignment because they were going to send me to Panama. And as a single mom, I, I don't know, I just wasn't comfortable going to Panama. And they're like, well, you can't just ask to t- get your assignment changed and get it changed. I was like, but that's what I'm asking. And so I ended up getting reassigned to Italy. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, you know, there's a higher power that uh, we are in cooperation with at all times to co-create the life that we're really here to do and to live out our purpose. And all of those things were necessary. So as, as crazy as the stories are, I, I relish every one of them. How long were you in? I was in it was in four years. Four years, okay. And then, yep. And then I got out, and I was out. Uh, I think seven or eight years until nine eleven, and then I went back to work for the Department of Defense and Public Affairs, and I spent twelve years with them. Were you so in Washington the Army? Uh, not permanently, but I went there on several assignments. I for the Army, I was stationed at Fort Polk, Louisiana, and then my my second duty station was with the unit that I was going to Afghanistan with, that was in Fort Knox, Kentucky. Okay. All right, and that leads us to wanting to go to Afghanistan. Where were you mentally at that point? Oh, I was... So after I joined the Air Force, I got divorced, and then I got remarried to an airman and had another child, so I had two children. 9-11 9-11 hit, we both, I'm like, hey, I, I met him in the Air Force. I was like, let's, one of us go back in. And he's like, okay, I'll go back in. So he comes home and he had joined the freaking Army. I'm like, what the hell? Air Force quality of living, Army quality of living, not even on the same galaxy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm wanting to get divorced at that time, but, you know, you just can't divorce dad that's going off to war. That's never going to turn out well. And so I stayed with him, moved to Fort Polk, Louisiana, and we end up going through a divorce after his assignment. He gets back from Iraq. And so I am remarried to now another Army guy. And so I'm just a mess. My, my kids are a mess. My, my second husband is now remarried to a lady that's strung out on meth. And there's so much chaos and just misery. I had been on antidepressants since you know I was 18, and I I was just numb. I was I was strung out on just antidepressants and depression. And even though my career was going great guns, I was in a third marriage, and I knew that was headed for divorce. And so I I sought out the assignment to Afghanistan. I was like I I don't know I don't have the skills to do this, and I had worked for the army long enough to know that pretty good chance it's not that hard to come back dead. And so that was really my plan. I, I sought out, applied for, and was selected to go to Afghanistan to set up a, a new unit. I was the public affairs officer for it. And that was my whole plan. And as I got to the unit and we were, we were building it, I was like, yeah, this is a pretty messed up unit. Civilians, reservists, and active duty all together as one unit. I don't know who thought that was going to be a good idea. You can't combine those three cultures into a cohesive, uh, a cohesive group, um, and so my mindset was literally: I'm I'm going to Afghanistan. I'm going to bank a bunch of money. At least my kids will have that, and I'm coming home dead. And if I don't, I'll have enough money. I won't ever need anybody again. 
So it was it was my honorable suicide plan. Wow. Exactly where my mind was. Life was not worth living, and I didn't have the skills to do it anyway. You know, that's, it sounds very hopeless. And, I mean, I had my boys and daughter-in-laws have been to Afghanistan and around the pond. They're all active duty right now. And, uh, and I'm glad I didn't have, <laughs> I'm glad I'm talking to you now and not then, um, because I, I've heard that actually sitting over there in the desert is, especially uh, one of my boys, he said, Mom, you know, if there's not a mission right now, we're just sitting here. And you don't want to be there. You're gaining weight. And it's just like, why are we here? And it can be very depressing. Um, and so I know the next thing that comes is the accident. I want, I want you to address that. I'm not quite clear where that happened. So you, can you tell me, where do you go from here? Where do you go from thinking you're going to go to Afghanistan and it's the honorable way to either serve or to die? Where do you go from there? Yeah, so I had applied for that job at Fort Polk, and when I was selected, then I was moved to Fort Knox, Kentucky, which is uh, just a little bit outside of Louisville, Kentucky. And it's a, at the time, had tanks, a tanker unit. So the little unit that I was a part of was engineering, and, and so I moved there, and I moved there in July. We were supposed to deploy to Afghanistan in, in early spring. And I'm just, you know, training and trying to make it through every day. I'm, I'm going through a divorce as a newlywed, bought a house. I'm going through the motions, but I'm completely just messed up inside. And I had all the things that, it, that our society says you need to look successful. I had a good-looking husband. You know, I had done the mom thing, had two kids, didn't matter that they didn't speak to me, had a brilliant career, I had the house, I had toys. Um, So I was filling myself with things because I didn't have any substance. So I had just bought, um, I'd sold my my Harley Sportster and bought a Fat Bob. Big, beautiful motorcycle because it's it's the mountains and and it's beautiful and motorcycle riding always calmed me down. It was just peaceful. And so I'm biding my time waiting for our deployment, and it was a Friday morning, and I had been up all night crying and text fighting with my husband, who was still at Fort Polk, Louisiana, and I, I, I was just so numb, and I thought, I'm just going to ride my bike to, to work, because it always makes me feel good. It's Friday, um, you know, maybe I'll go for a ride afterwards. So I get on the bike, and it's a beautiful fall morning, October in in outside of Louisville was gorgeous and I lived in a little town and had to kind of ride through the hills to get to work and the fall colors are there and the mist on the road and and by the time I got to work I was you know everything was all calm and peaceful and serene which lasted about 2.5 seconds when I walked in the office door just obviously went back into crazy and by the time the the day was over I, I found myself just kind of like shaking and crying on my motorcycle in the parking lot just I didn't want to go home I didn't want to go home alone I was supposed to go volunteer at this organization um, to help with some kids. And I, was, I heard that voice in my head that had just been hounding me my whole life. You're not worth anything. Nobody will know if you're not even there. Who do you think you are? This is just stupid. Um, nobody wants you. And so you know, I'm listening to that voice. And then I hear another voice. And that voice says, hey, you want to go to the bar and sing karaoke? And it was a coworker. And that was the the best offer. I was like, yeah, let me, let me go numb out some more. Um, so she, she said, you know, told me where we were going. And, and uh, so I'm following her and we end up going out a road that I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with. It was a, an asphalt road, but it was between the installation and a huge open space training ground that the tanks used to go out to protect, you know, practice their maneuvers and training. And I'm not really paying attention because I'm still fighting with my husband and crying and and all the things in my head. I'm stuck in that loop. And so I crested a hill and was on the outside of the lane. And when a tank will crest a hill or go around a corner, because they're so wide, they will swing out wide. And the tracks tend to break up the edge of the asphalt. And I wasn't paying attention. And by the, the time I saw the condition of the edge of the road, it was too late. 
And I remember just thinking, oh, shit. And the next thing I'm in, I don't even know where I'm at. I can't feel anything and I can't hear anything. I just see these amazing, like, star-like floating golden stars going past my vision. And there's nothing behind them. It's just kind of this gray blur, but kind of like sparkles. And I'm just kind of mesmerized as they're floating past my my vision. And I, I follow one of them off to my right. And I can see my feet as they're being bounced and drugged down the highway. And I... I can cognize what's happening. I'm, I'm, I, I know that I'm being drugged down the highway, but I can't feel anything, can't think anything. I can't even hear myself scream. And I'm in this like space where there is, there's nothing. There's just this awareness, and I'm thinking this can't be happening. I don't even know what's happening, but it can't be happening. And, I, and I'm starting to put two and two together, and the sparks, I'm underneath my motorcycle, and I'm being drugged down the highway. <sighs> and... Then all of a sudden, everything explodes like a bomb goes off, and the bike had stopped. It had hit the bottom of the of the hill, and I'm in the ditch, and and the the motorcycle that the engine is screaming, and and I'm underneath it, and I'm being burned, and so I I drag myself out of that, and what had happened was when the bike went down, my arm spun around, and it got stuck in the drive belt, my sleeve, and so it it sucked my whole arm up to my chest into the drive belt and the wheel ground off my arm and part of my chest and I was burning. And so I, when I pulled myself out of that motorcycle and saw the the bone of my arm, because it had been ground off from the wrists to the armpit, artery was gone. Like it was a bloody mess and I'm freaking out. I'm just running down the center of the road screaming, Oh God, Oh Jesus. I I don't, I'm, I'm completely out of my mind. And my coworker had stopped because it didn't come around the corner and she was backing up. And when she saw me, she jumped out and grabbed me and laid me down in the ditch. And she was an army combat veteran who had been blown up. And so she suffered from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and so the scene that she encountered with me being as bloody as it was really triggered her. And so she was having her her PTSD experience, I don't. I didn't see her after that. I think she was off coping as best she could. Um, so I'm laying in the ditch by myself and massively bleeding out. You know, I know I have between one and three minutes, and there's 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 nobody. I told her where my knife was, but she's not coming back. So I'm not getting a tourniquet, and I'm laying there realizing, oh, wow, I'm dying. And there wasn't a movie of my life. There wasn't any scenes of highs or lows. There was just an overwhelming black sense of regret, just remorse. I I just left such a shit show. And there was nothing I could do about it. And so for the first time, I did something I, I hadn't really ever done in my life. And... I focused on what it felt like to take a breath. I just laid there and felt the air come through my nose and into my body and felt just the sensation of, wow, that's life. And so I did it again and I wondered if that was my last breath because I was getting getting tired and I was getting thirsty. And I just surrendered. As I just I focused on my breath and watched the leaves float above me on the trees and the wind. And I just surrendered. And when I did that, something happened. And, and I, I as, I, as I've always known me, disappeared. And all sense of my body disappeared. And I, I just was. I, I just was. I was a part of everything. And a part of nothing all at the same time. It's hard to describe what just feeling your consciousness is like because there's no feeling in consciousness. It's the the lack of feeling, but the feeling of of just pure love. And so I'm in this space where there's no condemnation, there's no remorse, there's no regret, there's no pain. There's 
just pure love. And I, I sensed a knowing to say I heard a voice doesn't work, but that's, I'll, have to, I'll use those words because that's the closest thing I have. But I heard a voice that came from within me and from without me that said, you are mine. And it just cut through everything that I am. And I realized at that moment that I was, I was hearing the voice of God. And so it said it again, you are mine. And it was such an overwhelming sense of belonging. Everything that I'd always wanted as a, as a, as a person, as a child, as an adult, was to belong. To know that, that I was loved and that I was worthy. And in that moment, I knew that. And I was like, wow, this is so different from the God that I was taught, you know, the angry, vengeful God, that if you screw up, you're going to be judged and go to hell. It's like, this is, this is completely different. I don't know what this is, but this is, this is completely different. And then, and then that, that consciousness kind of, there was a, a, a sensation of chuckling. And I sensed, well, now that I have your attention, let's have, let's, I have some things to share with you. And so I, I proceeded to just receive messages of love. And in that short time span, I was shown my life in a way I never saw it before. I, I was able and, sh- and shown my life objectively, kind of like the viewpoint of God where just observing with no judgment. And I was able to see that Everybody in my life did the best that they could and that I did the best that I could and that I was responsible for everything in my life. It wasn't my mom's fault. It wasn't my parents' fault. It wasn't the drug's fault. It, wasn't, it was nobody's fault. I chose everything from a much higher level than just individual free will. That in essence... I went through everything I did to bring myself to that ditch, to bring myself to the moment I was living right then. And that was the moment of, oh, I am loved. And I am one with God and with the universe. And that this is who I really am. I'm not that body. I'm not that identity. That's that's the, the life that I'm living and expressing right now, but I'm oh so much more. And I'm not separate. And I don't need to belong because I do belong. That God is within me, living through me, and that I am also fully human. And so I just got this experience of my soul and, and like the creator and, and life on earth and the decisions and the choices that I made. And, the, and the everything was perfect. And, and I was also able to change my beliefs about who I am and see that, like, link all the different decisions in my life that brought me to that ditch the people that I chose to be around, the beliefs that I had about myself, the things that I thought I was capable of doing. And all of those were just beliefs because I chose to believe them and that it's so easy to just make a different choice and recreate a habit of feeling worthy and feeling loved and feeling capable and feeling confident. And that I kind of got a viewpoint of how we get conditioned to be the personality that we are and I got the opportunity to change my personality. So the woman that was drug into that ditch isn't the woman that was carried out. Mm. I had a complete transformation um, that is the best gift I've ever had in my life. I look at what's left of my arm and, and it's like, it, this, is, this is my superpower. This is, I can look at it every time and go, yep, you did this. You're, you love yourself so much that, no, you weren't just going to commit suicide and, and opt out. There was an opportunity for you to wake up to who you really are and stop believing who you thought you were. And so it was, that, a, it was an amazing, beautiful experience. I was just saying amazing was the word coming to my mind, and I, and I think um, I've heard, and I, I espouse this too, that we are eternal beings having a mortal experience. And yeah the things that we choose uh, for good or bad and those things that happen to us, we can flip them and say they may be happening for us. So in your case, the accident actually happened for you even though at the time, well, beforehand you were thinking, okay, let's have an honorable death in Afghanistan. And it's like, it's not my time yet. And 
all those things that you've experienced have created this incredible person that you are today with the experience that you've had. And I don't wish any of that on anybody, but there's no way for us to turn back the clock and say, well, let's not do that one and let's not do that one um, because we wouldn't be the same person that we are. And I mean, I put, I put on the on the promotion for this show, it's like your near-death experience changed you forever. And it did. And you, you said it when you said the woman that went into the accident was not the one that came out. Right. So right. you could have come out in a whole victim mentality. You know, why me? Did that ever cross your mind or because of what had happened, you now saw life completely differently? Victim was behind you. Yeah, I saw, I saw that being a victim is a choice and, and that you're never really truly harmed because I came into this world. I saw things from a, a much higher perspective than just the human consciousness. I came in with the desire to, as the soul incarnated in flesh, wake up to the brilliance of who we all are. And there were not this... We're not a, a rare, unique accident that is, you know, going back to your comment that we're, we're a spirit having a, a human experience. I had heard that and heard that and heard that, but I didn't understand it because it was always couched to me in your eternal spirit having a one-time human experience and, and what you can accomplish in this one life determines the, you know, the future of your soul into eternity. Mm-hmm. And I never really, that never really made sense to me because... We're, we're in this 3D body where we learn from experiencing what we don't like and what we don't want, right? Mm-hmm. And so I got to see that the soul is an eternal spirit. Yes, we have multiple lifetimes. So what I came into in this life to experience was built upon past life experiences, also incorporates the experiences of my ancestors as mm-hmm. as we now know science is showing that we we are chemically a product of the experiences of our parents and our parents parents and our parents parents so we are born with certain preconditions what's called karma that we can work out and i believe that we are the essence of god that has vibrationally been lowered to such a point that we are in a 3D physical form hmm. so that we can experience everything. Like God is everything, but you don't know what you are unless you've experienced what you're not. So the full spectrum of human experience is exactly what God is, is, has desired. His desire to know, his spirit's desire to know spirit requires that spirit goes into a space where there's non-spirit. Like where there's no light, there is darkness. You can't have darkness without light. So it's this duality world that we live in, and it's a lot for us to wrap our, our heads around. But because I had experienced that, when I felt somebody putting a tourniquet on my arm, and I realized, oh my God, I'm going to live, well, I can't unexperience what I've just experienced, which means I'm not only going to live, I'm never really ever going to die. This experience is one of many that I'm going to have. And I finally broke through the victim mentality. And now, so let's go live life. I haven't, I haven't really lived life. I have been depressed my whole life. So there's no way I could be the victim anymore. Because I realized that I put myself in that ditch for a reason, which means now I can create anything that I want. Now, it, it is amazing how you took that experience and then catapulted, if <laughs> I can put it, to the next adventures in your life the time period after the accident and before you decided to get into your next hobby because there must have been some severe um, rehabilitation recovery oh yeah 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 they, yeah they they wanted to um, harvest parts from my body and try to save the arm and, and like so the doctors that were working on my arm uh, Kleinert and Coots were the first ones that did a double hand transplant so I was, I was in the, the best, you know, I had the best care that, that I possibly could have. However, I was also a little bit of a lab rat to them. And I didn't want to have other parts harvested, muscles and things like that. I just wanted to get on with my life. So I had about 18 months of surgeries and therapies and, and all sorts of things just to get my arm into the condition it is. 
So during that time, I was still in the military unit. Um, they still didn't want me. I, actually, my commander came to the hospital the day after I, I had my accident to fire me um, because I was non-deployable. And the command sergeant major t- brought in the lawyer and convinced him that was a really super, super bad idea that that could be an easy potential lawsuit. And so I did have a, a struggle until I was eventually fired. I was non-deployable. Um, walked away from from that experience, gave everything that I owned away, moved to Idaho to connect with my family, my mom and my siblings, and spent about a year and a half just being with me and figuring out who who do I want to be. Because even though I had dropped that victim mentality, I had 41 years of learned behavior. And it's it's one thing to wake up and go, okay, great, I'm, I'm I'm God having a physical experience. Life is great and I can create any life I want. And it's another thing to change the actual blueprint and habits of the body that I'm in, like of this amazing body, this life that I'm in. That takes time and it takes, it takes discipline, it takes commitment, it takes courage. Uh, and so it also takes learning. I had to unlearn the ways of being. So I completely severed every, every friend that I'd pretty much ever had. Um, because they reflected back to me who I no longer was. And mm. so I, I isolated in a very healing way and surrounded myself only with people who weren't self-sabotaging victim mindsets, you know, um, strung out and drinking and, and all those things. So I, I built a new identity and personal reality through work after having the aha experience. So I want to I let everybody know that it wasn't just a... I came out a brand new person. I did, but that person also had to be trained and, and learn the skills. So it was during that time period where I'm, I'm open to learning new skills. I'm seeking out new skills. How do you have a good mindset? How do you develop good habits? Um, what is possible? And so for me, it's everything was possible. And so my brother is a big hunter, amazing, amazing skill. And he's like, sis, have you ever shot archery? And I was like, no. And he's like, let's go see if we can get you hooked up. So we go into this store and walk up to the counter and, and we're in hunting country, Idaho, right? <laughs> they know they know what's going on. Walk up to the counter and the guy, you know, starts talking to Russ. He goes, no, I'm, I'm not here. It's, it's my sis. And so he looks at me and he's like, oh, okay, so what can I help you with? And he's like, well, I want to learn how to shoot archery. And so he starts talking. He's like, are you left-handed? Are you right-handed? And I, I held up my only hand and, and he just, it's his eyes get really big and he's a, 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 a ma'am. Um, there's a, there's a, well, archery has, it's a two hand minimum, ma'am, two hands. <laughs> like, really? Two hands? I got to have two hands. Well, I don't. I was like, there's, there's no other way. And he, he, he kind of mocks holding up a bow. He's like, well, you lift it with one hand and you draw the bow back with the other. And I was like, okay, point taken. All right. So I just, I, I, I put archery in, in the box of the tiny list of things that I can't do and didn't really think much about it. And a year later, I ended up moving out to California to work with a prosthetist who they're the ones that make the artificial limbs. And I went out there because I thought, I, you know, I've been speaking to people and doctors since, you know, a month after I lost my arm, my, my occupational therapist was like, man, you have a great attitude about all of this. Can you go speak to this doctor and that doctor and this patient? And, and so I started, they got hired to go around the country and speak to doctors and patients about the patient side of amputee, you know, becoming an amputee. And so I was like, well, wouldn't it be cool to work in an office where you're working with nothing but amputees and maybe I can help them understand a better way of looking at life and not being so you know, depressed and all of the things. So I move out there with all these big hopes. And one of the guys that came, comes in is, is in a wheelchair and he's missing a leg and he's missing a left hand. And we get to talking and, you know, he asks about military service and then he asks about hunting and he asks about archery. And I was like, oh, no, I, I, apparently there's a two-hand minimum for that sport. And he goes, really? You just wait right here. So he wheels himself out and he comes wheeling back in this about four-foot-high round target. And he wheels it into the patient exam room and he hands me a bow. And he said, now what I've done is I've taken a, a, a leash and I've sewed it onto the D-loop where if you had fingers, you would, you would hook on. He said, now put that right back between your back two molars and bite down and then just push the bow away from you. And he loaded the arrow and, 
And he said, and then just, you know, aim at the target and relax your jaw. So I, I did all those steps. And when that arrow flew from that, the bow and hit that target, it felt so empowering. And there was just chills that went through my whole body. And I was like, oh, my God, yes, this feels so good. It, it was like, it was just so thrilling. And he said, well, I know a thing or two about archery. So, you know, I live about, I live in the next town if, and I do these little clinics every Tuesday at this place. If you want to come, I'll, I'll show you some things. So I did. I showed up the next Tuesday and, and he's like, so you've never shot before? Like, no. And so was, I was in with a bunch of veterans and they all had something missing or broken or blind or whatever. So it was a really good time and learned some fundamentals of archery. And so a couple of weeks later I'm, I'm back and he said, you know, what, what, why do you want to learn to shoot archery? I don't know. I didn't know that I did. Just it's fun. And he said, "Well, how 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 fun? Like, how far do you want to go with this?" And I was like, "Well, why are you asking?" He said, "Well, you know, we're about 19 months from the Paralympics, and the U.S. has never had a woman shoot an open compound. And you don't have any bad habits. You've never shot, and you've got some innate skill. And I think that if you do everything I say, you could." possibly make the team and be the first woman to represent the U.S. And this guy's a three-time Paralympian, two bronze and one gold. And so I thought he might know what he's talking about. So I was like, all right, you're going to be the first man that I'll ever listen to everything that he says, but I'll do it. I'll take that challenge. Let's do this. And so he was, he, he was the one that really um, set me on a course of getting into the true nitty-gritty of how to reprogram your personality to create a different reality. Um, because he told me about a book. He said, now, in archery, it's kind of like the Archer's Bible, and it's called With Winning in Mind. And it's a book on how to reprogram your subconscious in athletics, you know, for athletic achievement. And so I got the book, and he said, now, here's the deal, Sam. He said, and this is true in life as it is in archery. He said, archery is just a skill. Anybody, anybody can learn archery. It's equal playing ground. You don't even need to have two hands. The difference between average in archery and exceptional or a champion in archery is what do you have, how strong are you between the left and the right ear? Mm. It's all a head game. It's all determined by your thoughts. What are you thinking? What are you visualizing? What are you seeing? And so that intrigued me. So I got the book, and it, I, I lived and breathed that book. I did every exercise, every practice that he recommended, and I did it to the extreme. I had subliminal messages that I'd made of myself, and I was just totally reprogramming my subconscious in my sleep. I was becoming that that person, that athlete that, you know, the first woman to represent the United States in, in the Paralympics. And so I dropped everything, quit that job, moved to Colorado, moved in with a lady, and we did nothing but train seven, eight hours a day. Um, and her goal was to become the first woman in her category in archery. And so that was it. We, we lived and breathed archery for 19 months. Um, we both made the U.S. team in six months. I made the world team in eight months. And my 11th competition of my whole archery career was shooting in Rio de Janeiro and Brazil in the Paralympics. And it was all because I did the hard work of reprogramming my identity. And I had never allowed myself to be in company of anybody that would speak negatively because there were, there were a bunch of people that said, you can't do it. You don't have the time to learn the skill. You don't have time to get the, the competitive experience. It's just not possible. And I knew it was. And so, you know, I, I surrounded myself with people who could shoot better than me. And this is a key in anything in life. If you want to achieve something, surround yourself with people who have already achieved it. Because i I found quickly that whenever I would go to an archery range and it was the local archers and then maybe the local club and some hunters, I wasn't, there wasn't a skill level that I was attaining to. I was watching and being around people who had more of a negative, not high-level competitive mindset and who didn't have the skills 
And so, I, you know, my coach said, don't, don't shoot around average shooters. You'll be an average shooter. Shoot by yourself mm-hmm. or shoot with champions. That's it. And so that, that's, that's key in life. If you want to be, if you want to attain something, be around people who have already attained it. And so that's, that's pretty much how I became a Paralympian. Oh, and that's extraordinary. I was looking at the pictures you sent to me of Rio, and I'll put them in the, in the YouTube video. And it's just, what a proud moment. I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm speechless looking at them, Sammy. It's just extraordinary. And I heard you talk once, and it, our hour is going to wrap up really quick, but I want you to talk about the stick. You talk about a, life as a stick. And yeah. being magnetized on the ends. I thought that was an extraordinary insight. Can you kind of tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, and, it's, and I actually got this from Abraham Hicks. I don't know if, if everybody in the audience is familiar with Abraham Hicks. Um, but a, a, channeled, a, a channeled consciousness through Esther Hicks goes by the name, the collective name Abraham. What I like to, to think of is it's all our higher selves. It's guardian angels speaking through. And... Abraham says everything in life is like a stick and a stick has you can think of it on one end of the stick is everything that you want and on the other end of the stick is everything that you don't and the only reason that you know what you want is because you've been through a whole lot of things that you don't want and so we're all always holding a stick that is magnetized to what we're focused on. So if I am focused on things that aren't working in my life or I am focused on the anger and aggression and confusion and lies and bitterness that's out there, well, then I am leading my life with the what I don't want end of the stick forward. And there's no way I'm ever going to then get led to the type of life I want if I'm leading with the end of the stick that is everything that I don't want. So in each moment looking at what am I thinking about and does it reflect, does it attract the kind of life that I want? So moment by moment, is this, am I leading from what I don't want or what I want? Because, you know, you can think of it as a compass. If I want to go up north to Whistler, Canada, and I'm walking around and I look down and I notice my compass says south, but I just ignore it, well, I'm never going to get where I want at every moment, it is that critical. How, where are, is my focus? I have to be focused in keeping myself true north if I want to go north. And so it's just a visual that I really, that is really powerful in my life. And it's so, so simple. Which end of the stick are you leading from? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, science has shown that our thoughts, we are an electromagnetic being. And our thoughts attract the physicality of what we're thinking which sounds a little, little woo-woo, but if, if you look at everything in the world, and science has shown this, everything is just energy. It doesn't matter what you're breaking down. If you get it to the smallest particle, we're all an electromagnetic waveform. And it truly is what you think about will start to magnetize and manifest in front of you. If you look around your environment right now, everything in your room was once a thought that has been thought so clearly that it is now physical form. And there's a, there's a great story about Walt uh, Disney. When Disneyland opened, Walt had already passed away and his brother was there with the reporters. And one of the reporters kind of quipped, well, it's too bad Walt's not here to see this. And his brother looked at the reporter and said, what do you mean? Walt saw all of this long, long before anybody else did. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at our life, we can literally look around and go, this is the product of not only somebody else's thoughts, but everything in our environment is a product of our thoughts. That can be really hard when you're looking around and you're thinking, I don't like a lot of this stuff in my life. Mm-hmm. And then you can also look at, all right, well, where did, instead of just laying blame, let's, let's look a little objectively, like, kind of like me in the ditch. Let's look at our life as if we're watching a movie. And where did we learn the things that have attracted the things that we don't like? Well, we learned them from our caretakers and our environment. And where did they learn them from? Well, their caretakers and their environment. So if we're all repeating habits of thoughts and ways of belief that we've learned as a child, then it's, then it's okay to stop blaming and it's okay to just go, all right, now we know how we learn. 
let's develop some repetitive thoughts and ways of thinking and ways of, of catching ourselves being when we're being a way that we don't want to be and just gently correct it, kind of like an airline does when it takes off. A plane takes off in New York and it's headed to L.A. and it does a constant series of micro-corrections, constantly correcting its path. No judgment, no blame, no, oh, crap, I got off course, might as well just crash now. No, just constant little corrections. And we're the same way. If we can do constant little corrections with kindness and compassion towards ourselves, you will be shocked and amazed at the changes that you can make in your life. That's the most positive way we could end this show. And I'm thinking there's so many things that we could talk about. And this applies, especially that constant corrections, applies to everything we do in our lives. And I'm sitting here and I'm, I surround myself with a, with a happy office, except for some of the piles of papers, which I need to clean up today. Um, <laughs> but I, like you, I put myself around the, the positive people and I, I've learned to say no uh, to many things as I've gotten older. And that took, that took a lot. Uh, it's still hard for me to put a lot of uh, the thoughts about friends that I've lost behind and accept that as you, I realize that many people have come into our lives for a reason and for a season and they don't need to be there anymore and mm-hmm. understand that that's okay and, and that's the responsibility that we have to take to, to make sure that we're okay with the people that are in our lives and to be happy with what they're doing. And I, I love what you're saying, Sammy. I'm going to call you Sammy because I'm that's how I met you. Um, how can people get a hold of you and what are you doing now? So they can find me at moonwalkerlife.me. The class is called, again. Get Your Zest for Life. Get Your Zest for Life back. Get your zest for life back. And you're also part of Awakening Giants. I am. Yep. Starring in the Awakening Giants TV. Yep, yep. So that's I'm super excited about that. I think that the mission of that program is so wonderful. Uh, you know, when, uh, when Sprite says, just imagine somebody sitting on the couch, you know, flipping through reality TV shows and they come across Awakening Giants. Well, that's going to open their eyes to a whole new way of, of looking at reality that, you know, the crazy housewives of California certainly isn't <laughs> going to do. You know, anything that empowers the individual to come back to their true self and create the life they want is something I want to be a part of. And Awakening Giants has the most amazing people. I've interviewed so many of, of them and of us because I'm part of it also. Uh, unbelievable experiences, people that are vulnerable, people that are brilliant, people that have had some extraordinary experiences, some extraordinary falls, uh, but it's the courage and will to move forward and make a difference in life and awaken, and you know, awaken yeah. the world to the good things that are out there and, uh, and change our thoughts. Sammy Moonwalker Tucker, this has been an amazing day for me. I'm so excited that we connected. Thank you for your service in the Air Force. Thank you for your service and what you're doing now. Your experience has changed my life today. And I'm really Wonderful. grateful that we had a small time to connect and I look forward to doing things with you in the future. So do I. So do I. And I want to thank your audience for showing up um, for themselves because you know they're, they're here for a reason, listening to this message for a reason. Like I said, I believe our, our higher selves and our spirit guides, you know, help direct us to things that will help us evolve into, you know, the true essence of who we are. Absolutely. And on that note, thank you, my dear. I really appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you in person one day in the future. Sounds good, Debbie. Thank you for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. If you are the victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, Florida, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, make a small donation to help victims around the world receive the help they need. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our benfotemine products at benfocomplete.com. 
Use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thank you for being with us today. Go to my website, The Woman Behind the Smile, for additional resources and information. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and enjoy the replays. My books are all available on Amazon.com and Audible, and I encourage you to join us again. Have a great day.